Well, good morning again. It's glad, uh, it's good to be here. It's glad to have you here, whether you're watching uh, live streaming or watching later at some time or here in the congregation. We're glad you're part of this weekend at Fellowship. Next weekend will be the last of our series of Ezra. Uh, today we'll conclude chapter 10, but next weekend Bill will do a review. And as customary, when we finish a book, we invite you to tell us some of the things you've learned. So between now and next weekend, if you have a chance, jot down a sentence or two about something you've learned, maybe where the words convicted you or encouraged you or something you did not know before. And now as a result of the study of Ezra, uh, you've learned, you've grown some in your Christian faith and experience. We'd love to hear from you. So again, next weekend, those are always rich services. And as soon as we get started, it seems we have to stop them. But the sharing is always extraordinary. So think about it, come prepared. We'd love to hear from you. We're an interesting culture that is fascinated by apocalyptic television and uh, movie and film. I don't quite understand it all, but um, uh, War of the Worlds, a longtime classic that's been remade. This is the end. The Book of Eli was a very popular film. Jericho, Falling Skies, I Am Legend. My kids all loved I Am Legend. It's just a miserable movie, but they all love it. Uh, the Road, Cormac McCarthy's uh, book turned into a film. Twelve Monkeys, something of a cult following about apocalyptic endings. And then, of course, The Walking Dead. How many of you just, okay, we're friends, raise your hand. How many of you watch The Walking Dead? Put you really high. Be proud of it. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. Be proud of it. <laughs> um, I've never watched an episode, uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, 17 million viewers this season watched the beginning of The Walking Dead. I'm not sure all the reasons why we like apocalyptic genre. I can understand romantic comedies. I can understand chick flicks because you want to insert yourself in that storyline and have this wonderful romance and live happily ever. I can understand guy films where you wreck mayhem and kill bad guys and get the girl. I understand those films. I do not understand apocalyptic storylines, nor why we're attracted to them. Devastation, loss of life, loss of home, loss of your family. Um, and you amble around, you never, you never bathe. <laughs> you never change clothes. You're dodging slow-moving zombies the whole time. I just don't understand it all. Um, Maybe it's some survivor thing in our brain that thinks, well, if I was in that apocalyptic world, I could survive. Uh, maybe it's some other motivation I do not understand. But in studying uh, literature and, and why people are attracted to it, uh, my mind, it's just a complete guess. I, I really think there's this sense of survival in us that is a larger result, a, small, a result of the larger issue of the fall of man. That when Adam fell, he fell far. And in our spiritual devastation, we have a spiritual apocalyptic life. We are sorting through the debris of the fall and our sin nature that affects us far more than we understand it permeates our lives, it permeates our relationships, it permeates so much of our world, and we live in a kind of spiritual apocalyptic wasteland. The debris of a relationship, the wreckage of sin, 
the injury it's caused to others, uh, death, trespass, sins that are a part of our experience. We need a savior. We need someone who can remedy the apocalypse. Our need is not partial, it is total. Our need is not just for part of our life to be restored, but our entire life and being to be restored. You see, our sins have a greater impact than we are willing to acknowledge. And our forgiveness from God has a greater effect than we understand. Our sins have a greater impact than we are willing to acknowledge. But our forgiveness has a far greater impact than we understand. How can we love the world more than him? How can we love our sin more than our Savior? How can we love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life more than Calvary? Lloyd said last week, confession is recognizing our sin as inexcusable, God's righteousness as unassailable, and his mercy as our only hope. Confession is recognizing our sin is inexcusable, God's righteousness as unassailable, and his mercy as our only hope. Yet, we persist in toying with sin. We act as though we can take the wild animal and tame it and control it and caress it and pet it and own it, and it won't hurt us because we're smart in the way we manage and toy our sin. The author of Hebrews acknowledges the passing pleasure of sin. And I fear for our culture, I fear for Western thought. Western thought is not somehow superior than all other global views of things, but we are a Western culture with a Western thought. And I fear Western thought and Christians living in Western thought have been so inoculated by allocating you can sin however you want as long as you manage it and life will be fine. It'll go swimmingly. And we've become very good at sanctifying our sin and trying to live this dualistic life of following Christ yet keeping this well-managed, caged, wild sin in our pocket near us, beside us. God's promise was fulfilled. Israel had gone into exile, into Babylonian captivity because of their sin. He used a neighboring enemy to bring judgment on them and takes them into captivity. Between two and three million Jews have been in captivity. Seven years later, they are freed to go home. The exiles can return. In the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, it was under Zerubbabel, leading shy of 50,000 people back to the city. In chapters 7 to 10, it is under Ezra's leadership, and he's restoring the people. So a good way to think of the book, the first six chapters are restoring the temple, the next are restoring the people. We've got to rebuild the temple in order to worship God in the name, in the name of God, in the place he put it. You can't worship him in Babylon. Now we've got to restore the people morally and spiritually so they can worship Yahweh Elohim back at this temple complex. And that is the high level of the book. I want you to open to Ezra chapter 10, and as you find your way there, keep your hand there, then go over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Ezra 10 and Jeremiah 29. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Jeremiah 29 is one of these texts that is so often used um, as a country. I think it is a horrible misapplication of the passage. Let me read it and you'll see why you may be familiar with it. Maybe you've quoted it. Um, So I'll try to uh, uh, show you my, my angst with it and how we should be careful how we take these things out of context. But Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 10, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, that's the captivity we've been studying. In, in the margin of my Bible, it says Babylonian captivity, 70 years. And these verses are marked off. When the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you. Notice he owns, I have driven you there. I will bring back you to the place where I sent you into exile. This passage is often taken out of context and applied in all sorts of interesting ways. It specifically refers to the Babylonian captivity and how they were 70 years because of a miniature exodus, just like Lloyd referred to several weeks back, Bill referred to as well, that this is getting Israel out of Egypt, redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. We have a mini exodus. We're coming out of Babylon. We're redeeming them. They've got to go back to consecrate the temple complex to build it, and then they'll be able to worship. So redemption from slavery, consecration to worship. We see the same thing happening in the book of Ezra, the way the word of God unfolds. This apocalyptic reality, they're going back to a ruinous land, Homes destroyed, cities destroyed, uh, irrigation systems, all livestock destroyed, their land ruined, and the temple in disrepair. And a small remnant go back. Two to three million are, have gone into captivity. Less than 50,000 come home. And the second return, probably under 30,000 technically. So they are going back to an apocalyptic reality. They need to know this and we need to know this. That God's word had not has not and will not fail. It had not, it has not, and it will not fail. And that's the faith that begins this arduous journey back. Most importantly, God is going to restore their moral and spiritual lives so they can worship him. Well, in chapter 9 of Ezra, you see in chapter 9, verse 1, the abomination is identified. When these things had come, uh, become completed, the princes approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. And then it has the long list. Verse two, they have taken some of their daughters as wives and some of them for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. And chapter 10 is going to pick this up and how we're going to deal, how Ezra's going to deal with this abomination. 
Let's begin chapter 10, the first two verses. I call it bitter tears. Chapter 10, Ezra. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Shekinah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Ezra begins this section. We would need to go back and review all of chapter 9, but he's gone through fasting and praying. He's broken. He's repentant. He has the first person pronoun, I, 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 we, we. He's owning the sin of his people and leading them in this national confession. Sin is exposed. It's gone on so long that these intermarriages have resulted even in some of them having children. And that was unchecked. It was not dealt with. It was improper. Now, Ezra's confession, first of all, moves people to tears, which makes my mind run uh, to a simple question of what makes me cry? What makes you cry? Um, Raising children is um, a a joyful, terrifying, frustrating, delightful, otherworldly experience. We have four children, two are fairly well on their own trajectory, they're doing well. We have two that are still in that formation stage. I don't know that you ever really stop parenting. I think your adult children are done with your parenting, but you and I know we're still kind of parenting, aren't we? Some of the most interesting years, of course, the teen years when they're you know, learning who they are, their brain wiring is not quite there yet, and um, they're basically crazy. Um, as I've often quoted, Dr. Hendricks said, grandchildren are God's rewards for not killing your teenager. <laughs> but teenagers can challenge the best of us. And uh, if you've raised, been through those years, and if you haven't, oh, it's so much fun. You'll love it all. Um, but girls in particular had to do this triangulation thing with their friends. And uh, they're best friends forever with one girl. And then two days later, they are mortal enemies, hate each other's guts. They're in their bedroom crying a cascade of tears because this friend did this to them. And it's just so joyful as a parent to watch this. Nothing you can do about it. You just watch them cry. And uh, a cry they do. And uh, it's, you know, it's just part of growing up. It's part of our culture. Um, What do you cry about? Interesting question, what moves us to tears? The author here is crying, and the people are crying because of their sin. When was the last time you wept bitter tears over your sin? Had an individual come up to me in a prior service and said, I've never cried about my sin. See, we're in a culture that blames everybody else for everything in life. We're very poor at owning our own stuff. Well, I wouldn't have done this if so-and-so. I wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened if. And we're always playing the victim. That's why this culture of the Western mindset has leaked into us so deeply that we think we deserve something. And you know what we deserve? 
hell. And that's where the Christian mind's got to change. And we have to own our sinfulness. As I think about this, I don't know nationally an example. 9-11, of course, um, the Sandy Hook event. We cried as a nation, probably more so at 9-11 than Sandy Hook. Certainly the families in that area cried corporate tears. But when have you cried publicly because of our sin as a believing community? Striking a large assembly has gathered the contagious of the weeping, and they cry these bitter tears. Well, we have the act of courage coming. What are we going to do now in this situation? Verses 3 and 4. So, now, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all our wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Now, one quick note caveat here. Verse 3, uh, your Bible might have um, my Lord to the counsel of my Lord. Now, there might be a question mark. Are we talking about God or are we talking about Lord as a sir title? Uh, I'm going to lean that Shekinah in verse 2, Shekinah, Shekinah pronunciation, that he is saying this to Ezra. And he's speaking to Ezra saying, uh, my Lord, you can do this. And the reason I lean that way is at the end of verse 4, uh, your, it's your responsibility. We will be with you, be courageous and act. He's not talking about God at this point. He's talking to Ezra, the priest. That's at least my argument. What's he doing here? Number one, he's admitting their unfaithfulness, but he has hope. Don't miss that. He owns their sin. <laughs> they've, been, they've been crying bitter tears. He owns their sin. And he says, we have to deal with this. But if we do this, we can have hope. Let us make a covenant with our God. We've talked many times about cutting a covenant. <clears throat> and the first time we have it is with Abram and God. And later off, we have covenants that are made. We talked about bilateral and unilateral covenants. But the word in Hebrew means to cut something, to cut a covenant. And it simply means this. If we make a covenant, if you and I made a covenant, and I would do my part and you would do your part, it's a blessing curse motif. If you do your part, fine. If I do my part, fine. If you don't do your part, I can kill you. If I don't do my part, you can kill me. That's the idea of cutting a covenant. I will cut you if you don't keep your part of the bargain. You can cut me if I don't keep my part. That's the picture. So the cutting of the covenant here, we're going to cut this covenant with God. Now this is hard for us to stomach when it says put away our wives and our children as a Western mindset. We're very far removed from the, the social, the historical, the spiritual issues of intermarriage of the Jewish people. It is an egregious sin in the law of God for them to marry outside their nation. Um, I think it's striking to keep the context in, in, in mind according to the counsel of our God we will tremble at his commandment and of our God and we will obey him. Do we tremble at his word? Or are we clever at our compartmentalization that we can live and manage this sin appropriately somehow and still live a faithful life? 
put away wives and children is no commentary on interracial marriage. Put away children and wives is a commentary on God's chosen people marrying people groups from pagan backgrounds. And the list we could look at, Moabites, Ammonites, Canaanites, and others. Some of these, uh, the Canaanites especially, enmeshed all sorts of sexual immorality as a form of their worship. Uh, Molech, the god, Chemosh, these were gods where children were sacrificed to these gods. The, The idea was God didn't say to Israel, you can't marry outside because it's interracial marriage. It's spiritual adulteration if you marry outside because those religions will impact you. Those cultic sin practices will permeate into your system. You and I live in a Western culture. We are being affected by the morality, immorality, definition of right and wrong of our culture in the same way as Christians. And we believe a lie and we incorporate it in and we're no different when we embrace those ologies and isms and say, well, we were made this way or it's not that big of a deal. And you can't call that sin anymore. It's Old Testament. It's ridiculous. That doesn't apply today. God does not hate these people. These people hate God. These cultures hated Yahweh Elohim. These cultures hated God's people. And because they practiced these idolatrous, immoral, religious systems, God said, don't marry them. And we saw what happened to Solomon when he does. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Which is precisely why they ended up in Babylon in the first place. Why they ended up in Egypt in the first place. Because they disobeyed God. The failure at Kadesh Barnea, the failure before Babylon captivity with the intermeshing of all these things. Now we're coming out of that. There's hope if we do the right thing. Put away is an interesting word. Now some of your Bibles say the word divorce. I take issue with that. Um, I'm not the final on this, so take this with a grain of salt. But in a word study of this phrase, put away, uh, to make it sound like a divorce to me is is overstepping how the word is used in our Bible. Uh, Simply, it means to put something out, to put it away. Uh, The best picture I can give you is Hagar and Ishmael. When Abram and Sarai find themselves in Egypt and he lies about his sister wife, um, where does Hagar come from? Where does this Egyptian servant come from? A lie that Abram perpetrated in Egypt. And he's sent out of Egypt with all of these slaves and donkeys and animals and livestock and so forth to get, get, him, get rid of him. Another illusion of the exodus, what's going to happen on a grand scale later when they're coming out of Egypt. We're all coming out of Egypt. So Abram and Sarai appropriate all these slaves. Next thing we know, he uh, is promised Descendants is the sand is the sea. We're still infertile. We're still waiting for the first one to be born. Impatient. He has relations with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. She bears a son, Ishmael. And you know the story well. She begins to resent Ishmael. When she finally has Isaac, she wants Abram to send them away. Now, we have no record of Abram marrying Hagar. We get all sorts of Old Testament law about the progeny carrying, uh, carrying on the name, the continuation of a name. But as for another time... 
at principle here, he sends Hagar and Ishmael away, and God cares for them. It's not a happily ever after story by any means, but I would suggest this is putting away. Also, the word is used simply to go out. It's used of emancipation of a slave during the year of Jubilee. It's used of things reverting in the year of Jubilee. Remember Jubilee, you were indentured and you said, I'll work for you because uh, I'm broke, I'm poor, I'll work your land, I'll help your livestock, whatever the relationship would be. But the year of Jubilee, all the slaves were set free. They were put out. They were given their freedom. So as you see how the word is used, to make it say divorce, I think, is pushing it a little too far. Nevertheless, it seems harsh. But remember, they broke covenant with Yahweh Elohim when they married a nation he told them precisely not to do. And those sins infiltrated the system. They then choose to obey. So Shekinah's admonition, arise. This matters your responsibility, Ezra. You've got to lead us through this, Ezra. Be courageous and act. Listen to Edwin Yamauchi. Though though the actions of Ezra and later Nehemiah may strike some readers as harsh, they were more than racial or cultural measures. They were necessary to preserve the spiritual heritage of Israel. Warnings against intermarriage were clearly concerned about spiritual adulteration. Because when you enter that theology, that ism, that teaching into the system, you will always go there. That's why Americans continue, American Christians, to say, well, those really aren't sins. That's really not what the Bible says. It really doesn't matter. We can fold that in, to which I say we are all consistently inconsistent in our belief about God. We consistently amalgamate and change what the Scripture teaches. God's Word had not, has not, and will not fail. Why do we tweak it? We tweak it because it's unpopular, it seems harsh, it seems unkind, fill in the blank. You're out of date, you're out of touch, no one else believes that. God's not moved. Not to sound pretentious, men and women, you're not going to hear this anywhere else but in a local church that believes this is the very word of God. You're just not going to hear it anywhere else. And if you believe it, you're weird. You're bizarre. You're a nutcase. And we're in good company because Paul said he was a fool for Christ's sake. Be courageous, Ezra. Act. God will be with you. There's hope. And that's the part of smiling at the future I often encourage you. First of all, the bitter tears. Secondly, the courage to act. And third, the heavy rain. Let me say one more thing about putting away. I was in Nigeria in 1993 for a while, and it's a major problem even to this day. You have uh, a Nigerian man who has more than one wife, and often there'll be a Christian wife and a Muslim wife, and two and three sometimes in the same compound. And if that man comes to Christ, what would you tell him to do with his two or three wives? This is an ongoing problem in many cultures around the world. And... Better minds than mine could come to conclusions, but one of the things they try to do is you send that woman and her children back to her home of origin, if possible. 
Sometimes you can't do that because of cultural disgrace, sometimes for fear of their lives, sometimes they actually build a separate compound for those wives to live out their lives where they're still supported, but there are no longer relationships with that man when he comes to Christ. You see, sin's messy. And once you create this appendage, what do you do with it? Our sins have consequences, and these are big consequences. The bitter tear, the courage to act, and now we have this long section, verse 5 to the end of the chapter, which I simply entitled, The Heavy Rain. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priest, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoachan, the son of Elisha. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. They're sending out a a message. Everybody come to the city. And whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions would be forfeited, and he himself would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. If you don't respond to this proclamation, you're going to lose your property and your legal rights as a Jew. In other words, you better show up. So, verse 9, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem. I have in the list of my Bible uh, the top ten most remarkable verses. I may add this one. Uh, One of them is the the one from Acts where it says, and all the church agreed. (laughs) Most remarkable verse in Acts. Um, This one is another one. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month of the 12th, uh, excuse me, on the 12th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. You're going to love the way the scripture paints the story. They're trembling because of the sin. They've been, this proclamation, no doubt, terrifying. You better come here. You're going to lose your land and your legal rights as an Israelite. You better show up at Jerusalem. And they all come. And they're afraid. And if that weren't enough, it's raining and it's cold. The square east of the temple complex could seat thousands of people. So we don't know the precise audience size, but there were a lot of them. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up. For you Bible study nerds like me. Verse 5, Ezra rose. Verse 6, Ezra rose. Verse 10, Ezra stood up. Same word each time. It's more than just a movement of him getting up. This is a movement of his leadership. This is a movement of what God's doing with the priest Ezra to lead his people, to get up. And he's following the admonition. Be courageous and act and do this. And so the language moves the story. And then we have that caveat icing and it's raining. The environment is against it. People don't want to be there. They were compelled to come. The exiles that came. And he stands up and takes the leadership. And he said to them, verse 10, you have been unfaithful. Well, welcome. Let's have a party. They've been motivated by fear to come. Now they're being 
in, a, in a wet square, in a cold area, and he says to them, you have been unfaithful. And married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. And separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that is right. As you've said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can this task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Now, summarize the rest of the story in the text. What happens here is that they're going to be sent back to their villages and cities, and the elders... And the judges, you know, the term elder in the Old Testament, there's a, a, a colloquialism that the elders were often at the gate. And the story of Ruth, uh, the elders were at the gate, and Boaz goes to meet the elders at the gate. It was a metaphorical and literal occupation. They're not sitting in the shade, but the gate of the city is where transactions occurred, where people came in and left. But this was where we might call it the open court. And so if you had a matter, you would go to the elders at the gate of the city and present your situation. So what they're saying is there's so many of us, we can't do it in the rain, uh, so let's go home to our villages and cities, and those local elders and leaders, they will walk us through this process so we can identify which one of us married foreign wives and what that means. And so the plan, we don't know who submits the plan, but the plan is accepted. It is a serious matter. Um, it is a proclamation they respond to, and they agree to do it. As you go through verses 18 to 43, you see the list of offenders. I will not read them, but there are approximately 111 that we can clearly identify. 17 priests, 10 were Levites, and 84 from the general population. Uh, verse 44 indicates some of them had children. Uh, Edwin Yamauchi, in his study, uh, goes through a great a scholarly journey to demonstrate this was 0.4% of the population of Israel at the time. We're not talking about a lot of people, which to me is all the more telling God's concerned about the little sin. It wasn't a little sin that they intermarried, but when you're thinking of thousands of people, we're just talking about a few. Your sin and mine matter to this body. We toy with it, we caress it, we cage it, we think we can manage it. And we're smart because 1 John 1, 9 is our get out of jail free card. Most of you are pretty mature in your faith and you know in the back of your mind that as long as you admit it and confess it, he will always grant you forgiveness. We sang the song, Luke read the passage, as far as the east is the west, he removes our transgressions from us. How dare we enter sin knowing that? chapter ends, the book ends on a very sad postscript. And all these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. The end. Yet, Nehemiah continues the story. In fact, most Hebrew scholars believe it's one story. 
Ezra's account concludes. It's over. It's done. It's a painful ending. But Ezra did what God commanded him to do. Zerubbabel got him out of exile to rebuild the facility. Ezra brings him out spiritually and morally so they can be right to worship him, to be the people called by his name, to be in the place where he put his name, to offer sacrifice and be in right relationship. Now, the good news is we'll find Ezra again later on in the book of Nehemiah in a very different light. I often read these guys, whether it's Nathan the prophet or any of our minor prophets or major prophets, and think of their lives, they were lonely, difficult lives. And for Ezra to do what he did was no small task. But he had the courage to believe God's word had not, has not, and would not fail. And at the end of the day, is that not our hope? So, number one, do you own your sin? Or do you coddle it, caress it, feed it, cage it, manage it? Do you really think that the abundant life is to trust Christ and be granted forgiveness of all of our sins, be assured of an eternal relationship with him in his kingdom forever, and to live managing sin all of our life the way we manage sin. Is that the abundant life? I'm not saying we're not always going to be tempted. I'm not saying we're not always going to wrestle with sin. You and I will till, we, till we're dead, till we breathe the last breath. But what a rotten, miserable existence to have this this pet sin of ours, this cage sin that we manage so well because we're unwilling to put it away. Can't do it in the power of flesh. Can't do it in the power of 12 steps. 12 steps may help you. 12 steps isn't the cure for anything. God is our only hope. Our need is not partial, it's total. Don't forget the phrase we read in chapter 9, a brief moment of grace. Forgives again and again and again. He's not mad at us. He's not mad at you. He loves you nonetheless. But when will you and I love him more than our sin? When will we take seriously that these little sins we control and pet and caress are as egregious as murder, rape, violence, sins of the heart, sins of the mind? I've said it many times. Most of my sins happen between the temples of my head and under the cavity of my chest. But he loves. And there's hope. Because as we repent, as we confess, I don't find attribution for it. I don't quote it precisely. The closer to Christ we live, the more of our sin we see. It's a corollary, and it's true. So if you see your sin, you're aware of it, good. But don't coddle it. Don't caress it. Don't think it's okay to manage it appropriately. Ask him for help. Repent, repent, and repent again. And maybe you need to cry some bitter tears over it. 
and know that He loves you. And know that He cares. And know that He does forgive. And fall more in love with your Savior than with your sin. Father, we need you, not partially, but totally. We have no concept of the impact of our sin and how it affects others. Nor do we appreciate the extent and effectiveness of your forgiveness in our lives. We of all people who know you and know your word should be examples to others. And I pray your spirit will so move in each one of us that we will clean out the garbage in our lives that will call sin, sin, that will cry some bitter tears when need be, that we will own it and not blame anyone for our choices or our condition. And we will live to serve a righteous and holy God. Thank you that you love us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.